Hello and welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. My name is Tane Danger and I'm director of the forum. This is our 2023 Arc Towards Justice Forum with Dr. Cornell West and Ifoma Ike. Towards Justice is an annual program we started to reflect on a year since George Floyd's murder here in Minneapolis. Every year, we ask national racial justice leaders to reflect on where we have come since May of 2020 and where they believe we still need to go. If this is your first time joining us at the Westminster Town Hall Forum, welcome. We are based out of Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our mission is to present voices of conscience addressing the issues of the day from an ethical perspective. All of our programs are free in person as a live stream and here as a podcast. That is thanks to individual donors who make everything we do possible. Please consider supporting this with a donation. You can make a gift online at westminsterforum.org. There you will also find recordings of all of our past forums going back to 1980. There are more than 300 talks by some of the most interesting and influential people in the world. Just go to westminsterforum.org and click on Archive. Today's program with Dr. Cornell West and Efoma Ike was recorded in front of a live audience of more than a thousand people at Westminster on Saturday, May 20th, 2023. It was guest moderated by Angela Davis of Minnesota Public Radio News. And Angela Davis is the first voice you'll hear. Well, hello. I almost want to say welcome, family. Hello, everybody. Good evening, so good to see your faces. So happy that everybody could be here tonight. Um, I am Angela Davis from Minnesota Public Radio and, and just so pleased to be uh, asked to be the moderator for tonight's discussion. Um, welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum 2023 Arc Toward Justice Program. I love that phrase, Arc Toward Justice. The Arc Toward Justice Program, um, as you may have heard, it's an annual program here at Westminster Town Hall Forum. And, and the, the point is, is to bring national leaders here to Minneapolis to reflect on work toward racial justice another year since the murder of George Floyd and the uprising that followed. It's my honor to welcome the two guests that we have here on stage tonight. Right next to me, this is Ifoma Ike, an award-winning advocate, <laughs> writer, <laughs> policy advisor who is focused on designing solutions to address disparities. She co-engineered Just Leadership USA and Mass Bailout NYC. She also helped form not one, but three congressional caucuses, the Caucus on Black Men and Boys, the Caucus on Black Women and Girls, and the recently launched Caucus on Black Innovation. She previously served as New York City's Executive Deputy Director of the Young Men's Initiative and a Senior Policy Advocate with the Innocence Project. Welcome to Minnesota, Ifoma. Thank you. Thank you. 
Next to her, we have Dr. Cornell West. <laughs> Dr. West is the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Chair at Union Theological Seminary in New York. He is the former professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard University and professor emeritus at Princeton University. He has written 20 books and has edited 13. He is best known for his classics, Race Matters and Democracy Matters, and for his memoir, Brother West, Living and Loving Out Loud. Please help me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Cornell West. All right, let's get started. It's been a long three years since May of 2020. Three years ago, we all know that George Floyd was murdered by a police officer here in Minneapolis in front of people in the neighborhood, in front of other police officers, in front of people who pleaded for help and pleaded for mercy. His death sparked outrage across the world and calls for justice as well. And so my first question um, as we think about this tonight, as we go back and reflect upon May of 2020, I want to know from each of you, what do you recall the most about how you processed what you were hearing happened and then perhaps what you saw happened? And then how do you think about it now? Ifomo, do you care to go first? Mm. Um, first of all, welcome. Hi, everyone. Um, this is not my first time here, and so I, I thank you all for your generosity on this Saturday. Um, I also uh, would be remiss um, as, as a mother, uh, excuse me, as a daughter of a mother who's a deaconess, um, to, to, to say given all honor to black God, um, given our honor. Uh, <laughs> given our honor to the shepherds of this amazing, beautiful space. Um, and also to all the activists that sometimes do not get elevated when we think about uh, whether it's Reclaim the Block or if we think about um, Care Minnesota, it's really, really important that when we reflect, we also think about the groups that every day, and there are countless in this area, um, made it so that um, George Floyd was not going to be forgotten. Um, I also say that the day after the funeral of Jordan Neely, I, am, I live in New York City, um, and also with the spirit of late sister, um, and I was proud to be a big sister to Erica Garner. So it takes us back when you ask me, what did three years ago feel like? It felt like this isn't new. It felt like um, there's a combination of rage and fatigue that I think we all tapped into, um, but being so close to a family member who at times laid down on the ground when it was raining by herself just to remind people of his cry of, I can't breathe. Um, I was brought back to a space of um, Groundhog Day that doesn't seem to uh, take note and learn from itself. It's also very important that we remember that while police shootings are very, very important, 
um, that there's something about people dying at the hands of other people. Um, there is something about um, what it means to um, see anyone cry for their family members, their mother. Um, there is something very, very uh, frustrating about what it means to witness this and also feel that you can't intervene to help. And so it's, it's hard. We just, we just kind of were at, told that this would be the question that we would think of um, to start. So I don't have a perfect um, articulation um, because I don't think we have time for a perfect articulation of what happened three years ago. I think it's important for us to remember that it still is happening. Mm -hmm. um, Jordan Neely, who was killed um, at the hands of uh, another passenger, um, and his crime was that he was on a subway screaming, I can't take it anymore, I need something to eat, I need something to drink, and that was enough for him not to be here. Um, so I'll stop there, mm -hmm. but that's, those are just some of the thoughts that I have. Thank you, and, and Dr. West, um, as you recall, learning about George Floyd, learning about what had happened in Minneapolis, what, what comes to mind? Well, first I just want to say it's, it's a blessing to be on the stage with both of you all. And uh, to return to this consecrated space is 1994 when I was here the last time. So just to be a black man in America in one's right mind most of the time for over 30 years is a magnificent blessing. Magnificent blessing. And I want to salute my dear brother Timothy Hart Anderson, First Lady Sister Beth, and Dame and Sister Karen and the others who've been so very kind to us. Mm -hmm. uh, see, I am a small product of a great tradition that believes that we should never be surprised by evil or paralyzed by despair. And so when I saw my dear brother George Floyd Jr. calling for Larsenia, his mother, and I looked at the response of his blessed family to that public lynching, mm -hmm. I don't stress the evil only. Mm -hmm. I stress the quality of the human response to that kind of hatred. So the, the family becomes part of Emma Till's mama. I don't have a minute to hate. I will pursue justice for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I think of the 400 years of being chronically hated, and yet every generation, these black people generating love warriors at the highest level from Harriet Tubman to Martin King, and, and we ain't even got to a love supreme of John Coltrane yet. Mm -hmm. What is it about these people that when they terrorize so, they still refuse to call for terrorizing others. They won't create a black version of the Ku Klux Klan. They produce Fannie Lou Hamer. Right. That's what I thought. And I got my dear sister Reverend Heron here going back to Union Theological Seminary for 40 years with James Watson and James Cone and others. Just stand up straight from Texas with her beloved husband. Stand up. She, she, she knows what I'm talking about. She knows what I'm talking about. So I actually was with tears in my eyes, and we are anybody who's wrestling with oppression and 
insult and attack and choose integrity, honesty, and dignity, you got a blue sensibility because you look unflinchingly at the catastrophe but still muster the courage to love and muster the courage to fight for something bigger than your own ego mm -hmm. or your own tribe or your own group. Now, I know we in the church of Presb prophetic Presbyterians. <laughs> All of them ain't prophetic. We know that now. <laughs> but no one tradition has prophetic figures who are hegemonic and predominant. Every religious tradition has been caught with accommodating itself to hatred and greed mm -hmm. and indifference and callousness. Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, ooh, the response to that Floyd family, mm -hmm. all that love that Sissy's mama put him and George Sr. put in him. Mm -hmm. Then I thought of my mama, Irene mm -hmm. and Clifton. I thought of Shiloh Baptist Church. I thought of the nightclubs that I went with my Jesus and cognac. Mm -hmm. You see, that's the tradition that George Floyd Jr. and his family come out of. Mm -hmm. And it is a tradition of spiritual nobility and moral royalty because you didn't hear one word from that family saying they hate anybody. Right. Not one word, not one word. You didn't hear one word say we're gonna terrorize anybody. You didn't hear one word saying, we're going to kill, we're going to murder. No, what is it about these folks? And our challenge is that tradition is getting weaker every day. That's part of the spiritual decay of our empire. It's fashionable to hate and be cruel. Highly successful to put people down. And if you choose integrity and honesty and decency and courage, people look at you and say, what's wrong with you? That's a sick society. That's what Martin was trying to tell us. And we see it now more clearly. Thank God for the children. Thank God for G. Philip Sauce and the children trying to keep alive the love train. That's what was on my mind when I saw my dear brother George. And the response was global, wasn't it? Well, let's talk about the, the response. response was global all around the world. Let's, let's talk about the response. I had to take notice of these black folks loving anyway. Well, well look, look at what we're seeing now this, today, this, this modern uh, intergenerational uh, multiracial multi movement for racial justice. Um, what can we learn from that? I mean, I, I like to right-size things to make sure we don't forget movements that came before, even the small ones that we don't necessarily recognize. Yeah. I had the pleasure of first meeting Dr. West when we were on the ground in Ferguson. And I think that's important for me to recognize that in many ways, that is in many ways the birthplace of the modern resistance of poor people for 300 days straight, that whether the camera was there or not, whether they got a check or not, those young people still to this day are still facing resistance and are still saying, hands up, don't shoot. We have to remember that. And that is not to take away from the movement. If anything, it is really to building upon what Dr. West had raised, 
the, the genius, the beauty, and in some ways the mysticism of what it means to be black and what it means to be um, of African descent is that what hasn't been rightfully um, shared amongst other people is that love is actually part of who we are in our DNA. And what I mean by that is that part of the reason why we can't be terrorists in mass is because our DNA doesn't actually allow us to do that and thrive. So when I think of the response to George Floyd Jr., that was also not a surprise to me. That was going to happen, right? What I don't want to lose sight of is that over time, we have started seeing individuals outside of the normalized multi-generational oppression that black folk experience also recognize their space, their lane, their role, and not one as a passive sympathizer, but one as I've also got to be a part of, of this action and this movement. The day I flew into Ferguson was the day that um, our young brother, uh, uh, um, I'm, I'm now a uh, young brother in Ohio who was killed, Tamir Rice. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, personally. Thank you, because a lot of activists, we struggle with, it's hard to keep straight of the names. That's true, that's true. Tamir was killed when I landed in Ferguson. One of the organizers was from the hometown that he was at, and that was the most diverse protest I personally had experienced in my life. Because there were parents, there were white parents with their kids on their shoulders in the rain. There were uh, Asian American community members that brought their entire um, organizing group. Maybe they weren't formally an organizing group, but they were there. There was a young brother that we met um, who came from West Africa, who heard about this via Twitter, flew into Ferguson, and he was so excited, but he did not know that tear gas was coming. So there actually is a picture of me pouring milk on his face, right? But that's important that we talk about how people decided to uh, respond and react in a different way, and in many ways how that served as the early models in this modern time of the former time, because as Dr. West shares in a lot of his teachings and his books, it's important that we recognize that this isn't new. And I, I'll end with this. It's also important that we recognize that in the space where, and shout out to our ancestor, Bell Hooks, who talks about the blend of what it means not just to be in a space where white supremacism, not really white supremacy, but white supremacism, the belief that there is a dominant race, right? That white supremacism mixed with capitalism, mixed with misogynoir, mixed with invisibility, mixed with xenophobia, how all those things then make us actually believe that the few people that are in power actually are. And what happened after George Floyd was that it didn't matter what title, what occupation, what space you sat in, every part of the globe was like, 
none of that actually matters and there actually is more of us and we want to demonstrate that there's more of us. We don't want to tweet about it. We don't want to text it. We don't want to Facebook it. We don't want to put all the burden on the black folks to put something out there and then we just like their post. We're willing to put our bodies on the line and we're willing to recognize that marching was never safe. So if you were just coming out there to march because this is your first march and you want to share with your family, you also have to appreciate the fact that there were people on Edmund Pettus Bridge that literally lost their lives, almost lost their lives, just to exercise the same right that other people have had, right? So I, I, I think that when I think of the multi-generational, intergenerational demonstration, it's a beautiful blossom of who we are at our core. The problem that I struggle with is that death, that black death, is almost a prerequisite for us to be out there. And for that, I would trade all of the intergenerational beautiful conversations in the world to ensure that black life can live. I don't want to march forever. I don't want to march forever. Dr. West, your thoughts of, of now what we see, um, you know, intergenerational, multiracial uh, movement to, to fight for racial justice. You know, I experience a moral solemnity anytime I see people shatter their own fears and straighten their backs out and bear witness to a love and justice. Mm -hmm. No matter where it is, it could be in the Middle East, it could be in Africa, yeah. it could be in Latin America, it could be in Minneapolis and St. Paul. But, we, but the sense of history is important here, you see. John Brown, vanilla brother, dies for black people. And I tell my precious young folk, he wasn't no white ally. <laughs> no. He chose integrity, honesty, and love. Yeah. That's like saying ben, Bill Evans and Miles Davis's quintet is a white ally. No, he's in the band. He's in the band. He's playing the music. Right. <laughs> or Greg on the drums, the Sly and the Family Stone. He's a vanilla brother. He's in the band. He ain't no white ally. <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> or the black brother in Bruce Springsteen's East Street Band. When you're in the band, you're choosing to be part of a collectivity that's tied to a cause bigger than you, that's rooted in a, a integrity and honesty, such that you bear witness to the love and the gifts inside of you to give to others to empower them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a spiritual issue. That's a moral issue. I don't care what color you are. That's right. That's right. It's true. Jewish, Arab, Muslim. Palestinian, Lithuanian, Guatemalan, whatever it is. Right. I shouldn't overlook the Swedes and the Germans here in, <laughs> in Minnesota. Love y'all too. Love you too. <laughs> but it's a human choice. It is. But at the same time, we all have histories mm -hmm. of gangsters and thugs in our tradition. Oh, yeah. And I got a whole lot of gangster and thug in me. So it's not a question of name-calling and finger-pointing. Mm -hmm. It's wrestling with the civil war on the battlefield of my own soul mm -hmm. and trying to push in a direction of a love and an integrity and an honesty. You see? Yeah. And so in that sense, what we saw 
right after Brother Floyd J.R. died was magnificent. But then a year or so later, things started really slowing down. And all of a sudden, people moving toward the ice sensibility rather than being on fire. Business as usual. Well-adjusted to injustice all over again. Well-adapted to indifference all over again. Thank God we did what we needed to do for the moment for those black folk. Now it's back in the old mode. Well, you see, that's a lifestyle. That's not a matter of a way of life. Mm -hmm. See, when you choose to fight against any evil, white supremacy, male supremacy, predatory capitalist processes that crush working people, Mm -hmm. that subjugate indigenous people. When you make that kind of choice, that's not a market strategy that helps your brand. That's a cause you're willing to live and die for. And one of the problems of our young people, they, they live in the most commodified culture in the history of the world. So they oftentimes they come and I'm working on my brand, Brother West. I don't, I'm not interested in your brand. I want to know what your cause is. I want to know what you're willing to live and die for. Your strategy is a means toward something bigger than your next career move. There's nothing wrong with career, but if you ain't got no calling, you're going to end up with a whole lot of money and status and position and spectacle and image but your soul is empty and your heart is cold because it's all market calculations rather than willing to serve and sacrifice. Wait, can I, but can I, but. That cross ain't no joke. That's love and sacrifice. Unarmed truth. The condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. Unconditional love, yes, just as is what love looks like in public, but, and this is what black folk understand so well, tenderness is what love feels like in private. (laughs) Oh, yes, 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 Floyd Jr. comes from a tender people, a kind people, a sweet people, a soulful people. People, and soul ain't nothing but the sharing of a soothing sweetness against the backdrop of grim catastrophe. And that's why the music has global impact of gospel and jazz and blues. Why? Because you have to deal with your humanity when you're dealing with that level of sound. And it's so sweet, it gets inside your soul, and it's so funky, you got to move whether you're in beat or not. <laughs> That's not just entertainment. It might get marketed as entertainment, but it comes from a way of life of a hated African people for 400 years that's trying to teach the world something about love and justice and tenderness and gentleness and sweetness. And if we lose that, America, Listen, we ought to be honest about it. If we lose that, America's over. Democracy's over. It's all about fascism. It's all about survival of the slickest. And thou shalt not get caught. That's what we're dealing with right now. I know I'm going on too long, but I... I, I do, I, I do. Hold on. It's and I, I know I'm not... 
I, I do, it's in, in, I don't want to say preparation, but you know the, the great conversation between Nikki Giovanni and, and, and Baldwin and, Ball. and Ooh, Uncle yes, Jimmy, yes, right? Yes, 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 so I'm going I'm to a, I'm a rub a little bit like Nikki for a second. No, that's, that's okay. That, okay. okay. I'm going to learn. I'm gonna no, learn. no, no, no. Because I don't want us just, just building upon the challenge that you have about not losing sight of the solidarity that came out of you know, three years ago. I don't want us to lose sight of what young people are doing. I don't. That's true, that's true. I don't, and I I won't. I agree. Um, Because, and and also to your point, I also want us to think about even the demographic and to an extent the age demographic of the individuals in the industries that are making the decisions, specifically around music and also around these brand strategies. Your little LinkedIn communities, are not a bunch of 18 through 38-year-olds that are making these decisions to use George Floyd as the thing that was gonna sell what they wanted to sell, but as we're talking right now, they are downsizing their black and brown employees. That's true. true. So I wanna be very, very, very clear that I wanna bring it back to the fact that for 300 days straight, young poor people in Ferguson marched without a camera. It's important to also note that many of individuals who are not necessarily rubbing shoulders with you, like you said, right, but do sit in spaces generationally with you, were condemning those young people for being so quote-unquote radical, but many of them also are still getting the checks for the work that young poor black people, young poor immigrant people, young poor brown people did. Why is that important? Because what we're talking about is love practice. Mm. If we're not willing to identify a different practice about who is doing the work, and in some ways remove the labels of who knows and who doesn't know, but really, really start talking about the fact that we wouldn't be here if it wasn't the fact every good thing comes from the hood. I want to be very clear. I'm from Trenton, New Jersey. Shout out to the hood, Okay. Bamboo earrings, at least two pairs. Shout out to the hood. And I say this lovingly because that is exactly what's always been commodified, is the hood. But the hood doesn't benefit from that commodification. And that's no different with protests or movements. Right? But I do want to identify that even when we talk about Martin, even when we talk about Malcolm, shout out to his birthday that just passed, yeah. even when we talk about, you know, a Palestinian Jew named Jesus, yeah. their age should speak to us about, in many ways, the way we overlook that disruption often comes from individuals that have not yet achieved a certain status or a certain title that are not making decisions and negotiations between whether they're going to move up a ladder or whether or not they're going to take care of their children, right? And also want to highlight that many young people with children were also out in the streets here in Minneapolis, in Baltimore, in Baton Rouge, in Ferguson, right? And so I, I want us to think of a dialogue when we're talking about intergenerational that honors what it means for this to happen and that this actually happens way more often than we talk about. And let that be the focus, right? Because as you said, the thuggery is always going to be there. And it's, it's, it's in almost every age group. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to give some grace and mercy to those that are under 18. But some of your, some of your little kids is little thugs, too. 
some little thugs out here, right? Good thugs, they have time, they have time. But I say all that to say that part of what hurts me about the way blackness has always been framed, right, is that there are white commentators in MSNBC that can wrap a, a, a line from Biggie and be seen as down and woke. But then when we do it, we're seen as thugs and that we're not well informed. What's wrong, What's, something's wrong with that. That if blackness can't own blackness, and other people can get rich off of it, and that young spirit is also at times being hit up against, not just by people outside, but people inside, that's why I have, I have to push back a little bit. Because I do think our young people also have choices, and they also made choices to be out there as well. So I just, I just want to make sure we're doing a both and, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And if, if there is a runway for growth, then I do have to question, what are our elders talking about when it comes to us? If the conversation is always about what we don't have, who then is going to stand up for what we do have? Who then is going to ensure that we don't get lost in that conversation and that it's not only important when we transition? That to me is still an intergenerational um, mm. promise. I don't even want to say that it's a, it's a promise. We're doing it. We're doing it now. And we need more of that in loving space to exist. Um, while also giving grace and mercy for understanding that because the hood is not something we created, that what you think is not divine, what you think is not beautiful, what is not refined, is still making somebody money, right? So we have to at least acknowledge that that unrefined space still has value to someone, right? So why can't it be also valuable to us? And why are we also not allowed to make mistakes? which is why I push back on black excellence. I'm not saying we're not, we're already, I'm excellent because I was here. I'm born, I'm here. But I push back on the need to be anything greater just to be accepted as human. I also think it's really messed up that we can't mess up. <laughs> right? And that's exhausting. So I just, I just wanna, that just, that energy um, just needed to, to, I think, also be in the space oh, yeah. because there's so many unknown, underpaid, non-paid individuals that have made this moment possible, and that part still burns me to this day. We're going to move into questions from yeah. the audience. Yeah. But, uh, before they do that, I want to ask you both a personal question that uh, it's something I'm struggling with, exhaustion. Bell Hooks, you referenced Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks talked about self-care as an act of resistance. And I just finished reading the book, uh, Rest is Resistance by Trisha Hersey of the Knapp Ministry. And so I want to know, personally, uh, Dr. West, um, how do you take care of yourself? <laughs> I think a lot of people are, 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 are struggling with, with having the energy and the focus that they want and need to do the work that they want to do, particularly as it pertains to fighting for racial justice. How do you take care of yourself? Because I walk behind you. You got a lot of energy. I, I mean, no, seriously. I, I, I don't really think about that question too much. I'm just having such a good time <laughs> in time and space. Uh, I got so much love that has been poured into me. I was talking about Irene and Cliff, mom and dad, who's now passed, and uh, Clifton and Sinton Cheryl, my magnificent mm. wife, Anahita, and my 
my kids and friends and partners. I mean, I've got so much love. I need at least four or five lifetimes mm. to even think about running out of gas. You know what? I, I really do. Now, that's not true for everybody, but it's just true for me. So lean into love? I guess that's one way of putting it, yeah. Just lean in, open to it, and try to get it out and recognize you're still a cracked vessel and you're just trying to love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart. <laughs> does that make sense? I mean, I know it's, it's, not, it's not that profound because I'm just... It's, it's, it's true, right? It's just me, you know. I've just been blessed like that. I'm a love child. I really have been. And if you met my mama, you know what I'm talking about. Mm. It's true. And Foma, any uh, advice or personal experience with self-care and, and taking yourself, care of yourself as an act of resistance? Mm. Mm. Um, very quickly, because I'm, I'm so excited about these questions. Um, I, I am somebody who suffered um, with long COVID. Mm. And it's much better now than when it first happened. Um, but during the pandemic, before I had gotten COVID, I had also found out that I had fibroids. So when, when we're having this conversation, um, and for full transparency, because I've, I've been known to be a transparent person, I'm experiencing fibroid pain as we speak. Mm. And that question of self-care is one that I always challenge to broaden as to what communal care looks like. Mm. Because sometimes we put care too much on the self when it's the community that the environment has made me sick, right? So I do think that part of the care part is that active resistance of, of remembering myself as I'm doing my work, I'm a lot more conscious of the body that's doing the work while I'm doing the work because my body is at the space where it reminds me that I can't always put paragraphs together the same way I used to or I can't run as fast or breathe as fast or what have you. Um, and I also think that um, in the midst of that self-care that we have always been a communal people that have cared for each other, even if it hasn't always been recognized, right? So I recognize the care that people give to me when they send a text message, or even when you post a picture, I have some friends that are like, if I don't get at least 100 likes, I'm gonna take this picture down. And I'm like, but you got 12. Like 12 people loved you at that moment, right? So just seeing love more, and not dismissing love and thinking that love needs to look a certain way or that care needs to look a certain way um, has been really helpful for me. Thank you. How would you answer that question? Sure. Self-care? Yeah. I think um, trying to intentionally focus on what is working and, mm -hmm. again, focusing what is good and not losing sight on, you know, the victories that we've had thus far. Mm. and knowing that things can change, mm -hmm. right? And what we as individuals can do, um, that that can be powerful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and not feeling guilty about everything I don't do, but feeling good about what I'm able to do mm -hmm. each day. Yeah. But thank you no. for answering that. Yeah.
All right, uh, we're going to take a moment just to reintroduce uh, our guests and to start collecting uh, questions from the audience. Lots of them are coming in. This is wonderful. Um, this is the Westminster Town Hall Forum's uh, 2023 Arc Toward Justice program uh, coming to you from downtown Minneapolis. I'm Angela Davis from Minnesota Public Radio. We're joined tonight by award-winning advocate, writer, and policymaker Ifoma Ike, as well as author, professor, and historian Dr. Cornell West with other attendees. Uh, now, Dr. West and uh, Ifoma, if you're ready, I'm going to present the questions from the audience. Let's see. Um, first one, what projects are you currently working on? What are you doing on right now that you would like people to know and, and that you're excited about? I want you to share that project. Well, no, no, I want you to share that project. Tell us, okay. She's talking about, oh, about the house. The record? house. You gotta share. Which one? Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I told my dear sister she's from the greatest bureau in the world, Brooklyn, <laughs> and uh, um, I'm from, but I live there. <laughs> no, but I was I was at House of Yes, which is the biggest queer space in Brooklyn, because I've been working on a house album called The House of West. And, uh, uh, and she was kind of laughing about it, but I've got a long history. I got three albums. In fact, I was blessed to be the only one that the one and only Prince allowed to use his music on my album for, for hip hop. You see, and the genius of Prince is like what Elliot said about language in, in Burnt Norton the, the words break and slip and slide and won't stay still because they collapse in the face of his genius. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's always been true, I think, with music, you know, that we're at a point now where our language has been so thoroughly uh, uh, colonized and bastardized and misused that people are looking for something beyond language. And what is beyond language but light and love and silence mm -hmm. and music? And you can use the silence, you can use light by example. You can use love. And all of you all who know what love really is, you know how language gets in the way. <laughs> I'm not going to go into the rest of that, but me and my beloved wife, Anahita, understand what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? So that in that sense, back to the young folk. You see, young folk have deep suspicion of language because it's been used and manipulated in so many ways. They want to see sermons, not hear them. Mm -hmm. They want to see examples. They don't want to hear a discourse about X and Y. Mm -hmm. That's something very, very different. Yeah, that's true for every generation, but it's especially true, I think, for our precious young folk. Yeah. Is that fair, you that think? Is. Yeah, right on, right on, right on. What are you working on right now? Um, I got a lot of questions here. Okay. Um, so I guess two very quick things, um, and when you were talking about the rest aspect, um, our team is working on a project with, um, we proposed a project called Radical Sabbatical with uh, Robert uh, Wood Johnson Foundation um, with the vision of, again, those people that have helped us get through and start these movements. What does it look like for them to radically have rest? without having to pay for it, without it being an expense to them. So we're excited about Tell that. Tell us more. Um, <laughs> where, do, where do I sign up, Working right? Radio, where, where is um, this happening? <laughs> no, we, we, we just got the funding. And this is actually the beautiful part. We, we designed the project and the program during the pandemic. And because of some administrative error, that's what, that's what we'll call it nicely here, um, the money has been allocated for us to plan 
um, to build it out. And the reason why that's beautiful is because I don't know if they're, for the organizers and the activists that are here, I don't know how many times we get paid to plan, but that in itself should make some people shout as to like, what? Um, so we're excited about that, but the, the fuller vision um, is to ensure that people like my mother, who were essential workers, shout out to nurses, nurses that are here, teachers that are here um, during the pandemic. Um, those who are in the gig economy that do social impact work that oftentimes people assume that they have the money and the resources to take a break, but oftentimes we don't. Um, and then those who work, what I like to say, the nine to five and then the six to midnight. What does it mean for, for rest for them when they are not in spaces where a sabbatical that tends to come, in, at least in this country, through educational tenured spaces, um, what does it mean for people not only to have rest, but to reimagine a different version of themselves outside of their labor? Um, we are not only important because of our labor, and that's really important to be stressed. And then the flip side is um, I have a book. My first book comes out in the fall Ooh. called The Equity Mindset. So I'm excited. What's the title? The Equity Mindset. We will look for the it. Equity Mindset. Yeah. All right. Here's Thank a good one. <laughs> uh, another question from the audience, uh, Dr. West. What are your current thoughts about Justice Clarence Thomas? Someone asking for a friend. <laughs> no, but, no, but my current thoughts are the same thoughts I've had for decades. <laughs> Which is that first and foremost, He's made in the image of God just like me. Mm -hmm. So he's a human being. He's a beautiful black man aesthetically. <laughs> he does. He reminds me a lot of my, my, my grandfather. He's a beautiful black man. His face, his nose, his hair, and so forth. The decisions that he's made in terms of using the gifts that God has given him, I agree with about 2% of the time. <laughs> because he decides to side with the wealthy and the powerful rather than with the least of these, with the poor and working class peoples. Mm. And so we have fundamental clashes. I met him one time in an airport and gave the brother a hug and asked how his family was doing and hoped that they were doing all right and told him, you know that we are in intense struggle against one another. And he said, yes, Brother West, I understand. I said, okay, Brother Thomas, I just want to be clear about that now. <laughs> so that my spirituality and my love is not trumped by him being so thoroughly accommodated to forces that I'm willing to live and die and fight against. Mm. That's who Brother Clarence is. Another question from the audience. Uh, this is from a student. Uh, I'm going to direct this to you. What can Minnesotans do about Florida schools rewriting history? Oh, my mm. gosh. From a student. Can, is the student here? Can you raise your hand if you, if you recognize? Yeah. Is that you? Mm -hmm. Awesome. Oh, Thank you for that question. Beautiful. beautiful. Oh. <laughs> she said she's 63 and just went back to school. Um, maybe that's the start of it, right? We, gotta, we all got to go back to school. Um, 
I think what I loved about that question and why I was like, I want to see this person is that we have to recognize that these lines that, are, that create these states are imaginary. All of this is our backyard, right? So I think you've already exhibited the first step, which is your mindset is, I am here in Minnesota, but we are of the same people, so what do we need to actually, the question really is, what do we as a people need to do about what's happening in Florida? When I think of Florida, I think of what was happening in Texas when they were already banning books and it was mostly mothers, PTA groups, black women that were like, these books are getting erased from our, our schools. And there wasn't, there wasn't a protest for that. There wasn't a march for that, right? We didn't go out in mass. And now we have an individual that sits in what is basically the presidency of Florida and making decisions at quick haste. And for all us attorneys that are here, I want us to recognize that for me, I don't pay attention just to the policies that are putting forth, I pay attention to the speed. Because it is very hard to reverse Dred Scott. We're still doing it. So it doesn't have to be right, but if I can beat you to it, then we have the burden of erasing and reversing. So I am nervous that we are behind, but I do think that number one, on a very practical level, I always believe in supporting the organizers on the ground. There should be a list circulating of all the different groups, all the different teams that knocked on DeSantis's door, that did sit-ins, that pressured the, um, the college board as they were getting rid of AP English. But I believe the other day he just signed into law um, reapproving, if you will, Asian American uh, history. Now, what is that about? That is not about one being better than the other. That is an intentional design to cause divide within communities that have also have a rich history of working with each other. So I think we have to find ways to disrupt education out of the schoolhouse. That has always happened with many of our communities. Shout out to indigenous communities and early black schools that had to teach without the title of certification. Shout out to the earliest midwives, which were black enslaved women who built midwifery as a profession. But then when certification came through, it went from 90% black women to 90% white women. If we don't discuss this history and recognize that, again, the power is not in the classroom, the power is us, then we are going to miss it again. So I just, I just, I, I encourage you. I don't, I don't have the direct answer for you. I think you're already doing it. But I would love for you to go to a Starbucks. I would love for you to go to a Mickey D's, to a Wendy's, and for us to challenge each other and say, what are we doing about Florida? Because part of it is that many people aren't aware but then the other part is that people, a lot of people don't know that it's actually time for us to act. And it is happening in our backyard. We just haven't called it out yet. And Dr. West, what are your thoughts of what seems like an attempt to erase blackness from history? Yeah, but what, what, yeah one is that um, none of these textbooks have ever told the whole truth. Right. <laughs> and the reality is, is that I think when we're honest with ourselves, many of us, we can't stand the whole truth of what happened to indigenous peoples in Minnesota. No. 
We can't stand it. It's too much. There's a level of barbarity and bestiality that we can talk about with our precious Jewish brothers and sisters in Germany because it's distant. Mm -hmm. But when it's right in our own context, how did California mm -hmm. become California when it used to be Mexico? Right. Talk about it. What did Ulysses S. Grant say? He was in the army. He said it was the most phoniest criminal war. I was sorry to even lead it, but he played a role in the Civil War. Who wants to come to terms with the barbarity of the Civil War? 720,000 people killed within three and a half years for a confederacy that wanted to do what? Keep people in slavery in perpetuity. Right. That's too much for almost anybody. You got black folk who started running away from that. I don't want to hear about that. Because somebody just sang a song, give me some tea and some coffee. I, I. No, human barbarity since we emerged as a species has been so ugly in a certain sense. I'm in the Presbyterian church, I understand that. Because all the wretchedness goes hand in hand with wonderfulness, possibility, breakthrough, moral witness if you have enough courage to cut against the grain. So I don't want us to think that somehow because we got right-wing or neo-fascists on the move to redo textbooks, that somehow the truth was in place and they want to erase it. No, no. My brother, I understand. Brother Mahmoud, the father of the great Stokely Williams. What's his name, my brother? Akazi, 90 years old, still bearing witness to what? The truth. But he would be the first one to say he's fallible. He doesn't have a monopoly on the truth. Mm -hmm. He took this brother when he was a young man and had dialogues to 3 o'clock in the morning. Is that right, brother? But he would never say, I'm some oracle of pure, virtuous, and I've got the whole truth. No, we need to get off our crack pipes. <laughs> We're all fallible. Nobody's got a monopoly on truth, beauty, goodness, or the holy, but we're trying to live lives oriented to that direction. Mm -hmm. See, that's the crucial thing. And so in that sense, the history of black folk has always been what? We never expected the textbooks on the vanilla side of town <laughs> to tell the truth about us. No. They're trying to tell us James Cleveland can't sing. Okay, go on and sing your songs. We go with James and Aretha and Donny Hathaway and Luther Vandross. That's what we are going, that's what we're going with. Because we're not seduced by your authority. Right. You're just wrong, still human, ought to be ashamed of yourself. You're not, and we're coming at you with moral and spiritual power. <laughs> that's part of the history of black folk. We got to keep in contact with that history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And our young folk are already hungry for it. They thirsty for it. But as we talked about in Ferguson, you see, see Ashford and Simpson talked about the real thing. Mm -hmm. Ain't nothing like <laughs> the real thing. All right, time for another question from the audience. hungry for the real thing. How uh, you get okay, the real thing? Hold on, hold on. Next question. And that's true for everybody. For sure. Oh, Do yeah. you think that racism is a fundamental trend in American culture? Is racism a fundamental trend in American culture? Question from the audience. Ifoma. Yes. 
And I'm not, I mean, I, I, I'm curious as to what the definition of trend exactly. is. Exactly. Is that too loyally? <laughs> I'm, I'm curious as to what the definition of trend is. Um, uh, in a lot of my practice, I think that there's a lot of the blatant um, racism that we often label as racism, and yet the racism that many of us experience today, many people don't even know is racism. So I also think the trend of racism is the invisibility of racism, right? And that the other part of that trend is the denial of racism. And then we skip over how do we deal with racism and then we start getting mad at the people that label racism, right? So many of us, what we call racism is to me, it's more than a feeling, right? And that to me is actually, why, when I think of the trend, even if we look at economics, right, that racism, even equity, equity is not D&I. I'm gonna just throw that out there. That is not what equity is. Equity only exists because inequity exists, which also means that if we had equity, we wouldn't even be talking about it, right? We don't enjoy talking about equity all the time. Equity by a t as a term means that we are still trying to achieve a level of humanity. And when I say level, I mean level because I am even beyond whatever the basic level is of humanity. The problem is I'm still trying to rectify how we get Celia Slave and Dred Scott, those decisions, one that many people know about and one that people don't know anything about, as the intersection of not just being black, but black and, that there are so many levels of racism that we don't even talk about, getting back to what is not in the textbooks, that we, even as people who are learned communities, don't even talk about, right? Very, very quickly, the reason why I raised Celia a slave when I talk to my students, there is a case called Celia a Slave. If anybody wants to shout out, why is that so significant that there is a case called Celia a Slave? Any guess? Why? <laughs> okay. <laughs> For there to be a case that's called Celia a Slave, slaves were not considered human. So to have a court case that is called Celia a Slave is actually a monumental thing in this society. Groundbreaking, a young girl who before she would got to the plantation was raped on the road on the way to the plantation, birthed three of her oppressor's children and begged for his daughters to tell him not to rape her the evening that she killed him. She killed him, she was sentenced to death but only after she gave birth to a child. The judge in that case would get rewarded to then be on the Supreme Court and then rule again in Dred Scott. Racism disrupts how we do linkages because we move from moment to moment instead of really looking at the fluidity of what is happening, right? So again, the beauty of our response even to George Floyd is that as a people, because we are humans and hold humanity, we're always gonna respond. But the problem of it is we treat it like it's novel. We treat it like it's new. 
And then we go back down the dip because that's what racism also has us, is the trend of forgetfulness. So as Dr. West mentioned, a year later, what happens? Mm. We follow the trend, right? So yes, racism is a trend because there are patterns in the way that we respond to racism and the ways we ignore racism. But the hope is that as we recognize with any trend that you recognize, as was just raised around what can I do in Minnesota for those that are in Florida, it is the, the new normal that is our mission, is how do we create a different trend? And for trends to be trends, that means that it's gotta be multi-generational beyond our time. Are we willing to die out knowing that we've done the maximum that we can with what we got in this moment. And that's something that each of us have to ask. Are you doing the maximum that you can at this moment to address racism? That's right, that's right. I mean, part of the challenge, part of the challenge is just trying not to sanitize and sterilize and deodorize <laughs> the reality. Yeah. You see, so that even the notion that we gotta racial problem. See, America has never had a racial problem. Mm -hmm. America has been shaped in part by catastrophes visited on indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. Catastrophes visited on black peoples. Catastrophes visited on brown peoples. Mm -hmm. Catastrophes visited on white peoples who were poor and working class. Catastrophes visited on women. Catastrophes visited on gays and lesbians and trans and so forth. But the academic move is to deodorize all of that funk and to think, well, we got a problem so we can bring in the managers to get some handling of the problem. Right, right, right. No, strange fruit, says Billy Holiday and the right. Jewish brother Mary Polder wrote. Strange fruit is not about a racial problem. It's about catastrophes visited upon precious human beings of African descent. And so when you understand it's a catastrophe, you say, God, it's more like a fog than it is an object of, of, of investigation. Mm -hmm. You see? Mm -hmm. You got to hit it on all these different levels. Mm -hmm. Self-hatred, mm -hmm. self-disrespect, institutions discriminating, books telling lies, churches cowardly siding with white supremacists, right. and so forth and so on. When you move in that direction, then you got some serious truth-telling possibilities, you see. Right. So that's why when I heard that about, is it a trend or not? I mean, we, President Biden, last year they asked him, is America a racist society? What did he say? <laughs> no. He said no. What did Kamala Harris say? I agree with my boss. <laughs> We're not going to go there. <laughs> but I said to myself, This is a key sweat moment. Something, something just ain't right. Something, something just ain't right. We ain't, we ain't gonna go there, but I just wanna throw that out there. Where's the truth telling? How in the world you gonna grow up with all this slavery and lynching and teaching young black folk to hate themselves, and then somebody asks you a question, say, no, it's not really racist. And then here come Clyburn from North Carolina talking about, well, we got some patches of racism left in America. Come on, brother. Come on, brother. Just like Clarence Thomas, you beautifully black aesthetically and you're lying. You're lying. So then we have to raise the question, why are these folk are using this deodorized discourse? Yeah. Are they so well adjusted to the status quo that they don't want to tell the truth? 
Not, I, I know I don't want to go too far. I mean, we also, we also. <laughs> we need a whole nother forum. We need another forum on that thing, though. No. You say what? No, we, well, all, and just very quickly, because we, we kill our truth tellers. Yeah, that's true. So when I think of Fred Hampton. That's true. We kill our truth tellers. So I, I want to at least give the grace that the reason why many folks that we know in our circles don't want to talk about this is the fear when we talk about the terrorism of lynching, I don't think people understand what that does to the psyche and what that means for survival. Yes, yes, yes. You do a lot of lying to yourself just to get by, right? So I don't think any of those folks actually believe their answer. But I am saddened by the way that racism mutates what it means to live in truth because you're trying to survive right? And I'm not excusing to your point, though. We can't excuse, though, that's right. That's right. that the biggest pulpit in a capitalist society, in a capitalist globe, would dare to say that in the midst of what we all saw three years ago. Exactly. That, to me, is the part that, when, when do we then, well, I'm not going to say that. No, but then he goes to Howard University just a few days ago, and what does he say? The white supremacist terror threat is a major threat in America. And why did he say it at Howard, though? Exactly. Why he say it there? Said, he said it at Howard, you're, though. Are you saying what you mean? Are you meaning what you say? Or are you just saying that in front of these beautiful black students? Right. You see, this is politicians at exactly. their worst. Exactly. And we, it, they could be neo-fascist Republicans. They could be neoliberal Democrats. Politicians don't like to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. There's a few of them that do, but they don't. They don't. They'll say almost anything in order to gain favor. Well, you see, you can't, you can't progress in any substantive way if that's all you're going to do. For sure. If John Coltrane is going to try to play military music in Carnegie Hall and keep all the funk for the Apollo and the Harlem, yeah, you can't, you can't. then he's not going to be Coltrane. Right. But he's going to keep it funky and deep and truth-telling whether he's in Japan or Texas or Minneapolis. That's what we love about Coltrane. That's what we love about the truth tellers of whatever form they are. Right. Here's our final question from the audience. What is the next frontier of our work together? Where does liberation uh, lie and what does it look like? What is next? What do you see coming next? What do you hope to see next? What do you think is likely will come next in this next frontier? Our final question from the audience. What do you think, my dear sister? <laughs> um, oh. mm. Mm. Um, so there's many layers to that question. Um, I'm looking up because I do think that there is a powerful movement that I, that I think is happening within the black church. I want to talk about the black church just for a quick second. Um, I think that, as I mentioned earlier around having fibroids, that wasn't just about a personal revelation. It's about the fact that when it comes to the health and wellness of all human beings, we actually don't talk about the health and wellness of all human beings, right? Black women are disproportionately impacted by the reproductive justice system, and it is not a fight that everybody fights, right? We're getting a little bit further when we talk about 
uh, black maternal health and, and black maternal death. Um, but I, I, I want to think about the next frontier as not about trying to find something new, but in finding those spaces where extreme oppression and marginaliz marginalization has happened, but it's invisible. Because I don't care how far we move forward, it is still going to be that community that often is the ones, are the ones that are starting the disruption. Most of our movements that were led in most of the spaces we're talking about were led by black, femme, queer, marginalized, poor folk. But they go back home poor and not necessarily restored. And that is not to, this, to hear me clearly, that does not mean other people did not show up. Because the, the fear I have is that when we start talking about black and femme, or black and non-binary, black and queer, that people automatically start thinking that they are not included, right? When many of us didn't get the chance to question whether or not we were gonna fight or march for you when your life was being traumatized, right? So I do think that there's a part of me that feels like, number one, part of the frontier is how do we make whole the people that make us whole? And that is not necessarily a public thing. I do think a lot of our movement is about public demonstration. So it really has to shift to what do we do in private? Number two, I do believe that there is something very rich but also very missing about when, when, we, when February comes across, are we talking about only the people that were famous? Are we talking about all of quote unquote black history? Mm -hmm. Do we even know black femme history? Do we even understand what Diane Nash's role was? Do we even understand what it means when we say Fannie Lou Hamer? Do we even understand what it means that most of these movements, not only from being out in the street, but making the sandwiches so people could survive in these movements, that we don't talk anything about that. And we wonder why essential workers are being dismissed from keeping us all alive. So I do think that the next fr frontier is not something new. It's about us right-sizing the communities that keep us alive. That's a very tough question. It's a wonderful, powerful answer. I, um, I mean, just sitting here, and I think especially the young brothers and sisters of all colors, not just here, but around the world, uh, the levels of escalating ecological catastrophe, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. fast afoot, possible nuclear catastrophe. You got a gangster in the Russian Empire. Push the button at any time feeling wounded as an empire. Reminds me of another gangster in the German empire named Hitler. who was wounded, and Germany was wounded as a result of World War I. And you look for the worst to mobilize. You see. And then we in the American empire, there's been 70 empires in the history of the species according to the, the World History Time Atlas. America is the 68th empire. All empires come and go. And usually there's distinctive features. Military overreach. Yeah. 800 military bases. How many killed in Iraq? We only keep track. Almost half a million killed. Every Iraqi life has exactly the same value as a life in Minnesota. Okay. 
Afghanistan. Then you got corruption of the elites across the board. That's true for Rome. It's true for the British Empire. It's true for the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Do we see corruption across the board in the American Empire? <laughs> you don't say. Then the citizenry feels impotent and helpless yeah. and feels as if there's no way out, so they're willing to follow neo-fascist pied pipers who everyone agrees is beneath mediocrity, full of mendacity, but still surfaces. That's a sign of depth of hopelessness among our fellow citizens. Mm -hmm. And that's not a moment to, of, of self-congratulation or self-righteously putting them down because they catch in hell too. Right. We saw that in Charlottesville when I was there. The brother's coming up to me and Aren't you that brother calling everybody brother on TV? I said, yes, brother. <laughs> he said, I can't stand that. I said, well, I come from a people who believes that Jesus loves you just like Jesus loves me. You choose to be a gangster, and I was a gangster before I met Jesus, and now I'm a redeemed sinner with gangster proclivities. <laughs> you got to speak to his soul. His humanity, but he's still a gangster. He's neo-Nazi. He had the guns. He got him mm -hmm. wanted to shoot, mm -hmm. but you stand there with dignity and say, "If all you can do is just shoot my body, do you know who Harriet Tubman really was?" Right, right. Do you know who Louis Armstrong really was? They faced bullets, and they kept on swinging mm -hmm. the way Ella Fitzgerald swings, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the way Muhammad Ali swings, mm -hmm. the way Henry Aaron kept swinging. Mm -hmm. And what is swing? To provide a different conception of time so that you never feel that you're so completely enclosed in trumps so you can authorize forms of the future to generate newness and innovation in a moment where everybody else thinks there's no way out. Yeah. Now, some of us in the history of the black church understood it in terms of what? A God who creates a way out of no way. Yeah. But you can't deny the fact that somehow you got out anyhow. And you got to be true to that inside of you mm -hmm. so that in that sense, ecological catastrophe, nuclear catastrophe, ec economic, social catastrophe, spiritual catastrophe, they don't have the last word. Mm -hmm. They simply do not have the last word. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You see? It reminds me in some ways of what Henry Highland Garnett said the first time he spoke on behalf of free Negroes in Philadelphia in 1837. He said, black folk, let us never confuse our situation with that of the Israelites of, the he of Hebrew Scripture. For us, Pharaoh was on both sides of the bloody Red Sea. <laughs> and he's standing there with one leg on his crutch, probably a little gangster lean. <laughs> and then somebody in the back said, I think it's time to sing a song. Let's go back to the ring shout space so it looked like we're no way out of slavery. Just lift your voice like the anthem of these black people. Somehow we're going to find a way out. We don't know. History is open-ended. History is unpredictable. We're going to keep loving, laughing, fighting, swinging, organizing, sacrificing, serving, dying. Some way we're going to get out of this, but we don't see it right now. 
That's the what we that's the where we come from. Oh yes, that's where we come from. And we three wouldn't be up here if it were not for those people. The everyday people, the ordinary people who kept on anyhow. Without wanting to be anointed and mythologized and put in some textbook so that people remember your name. Your name is not even your name without your mama and your daddy and your community and the networks that shaped you and molded you. You are waving an ocean. You ain't the ocean. How do we keep our waves alive? That's part of what, for me, the new frontier, because let's just be honest about it. There's no guarantee. Right. We could have a nuclear war next week. Mm-hmm. Ecological catastrophe could continue to escalate. The organized greed could blind the powerful in such a way the fossil fuels continue to, to thrive, mm-hmm. continue to intensify. And the hatred of the least of these, whoever they are, the gays, the lesbians, the trans, who are the most vulnerable, but also the black folk and the poor folk and others. And we haven't got to the rest of the world, the global south, and all of their struggles. But thank God, Westminster Forum (laughs) still has the vision of saying, let's have honest conversations about a future that we don't know of, but we're willing to fight for. Thank you for having us here. We appreciate you. We appreciate you. We appreciate you. Thank you for listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. A reminder that you can find almost 300 other Westminster Forums on our website, westminsterforum.org. Today's program was guest moderated by Angela Davis of Minnesota Public Radio. Our theme music was composed by Kenneth Veen and performed by the Copper Street Brass. We get technical help from Keith Kopatz at Westminster Presbyterian. My name is Tane Danger, and I'm director of the forum. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you again at the Westminster Town Hall Forum.